The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and turn to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. This evening in our Tabernacle series, we'll conclude our study of the table of showbread. And I want to read here from Leviticus uh, because our major concern this afternoon is the bread that was on the table of showbread rather than the construction of it. The instructions for making the furnishing are in uh, Exodus chapter 25, and there we understand the materials of acacia wood overlaid with gold is like the other furnishings inside the tabernacle. But Leviticus chapter 24 describes the procedures for making the bread and the arrangement of it on the table. So Leviticus 24 and verse number 5, And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two-tenth deals shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. I'm sorry that I can't show you the picture of the table with the loaves of bread. But remember, we've described how uh, this was a table that was bordered by a crown. And there were poles that were placed along the length of the table that the Levites used to carry it as they traveled throughout the wilderness. And I wanted to to stop there for just a minute to uh, talk uh, about the transportation of the tabernacle that the responsibility for doing it was given to three different families of the Levites. And um, the Levites camped closest to the tabernacle. They were the ones that were responsible for just tearing everything down, putting it all back up, uh, taking care of all the furnishings and everything that uh, was used to make the tabernacle worship. Uh, Three families of the Levites, the first was Gershon, they had the... Uh, care of moving the linen fence in the courtyard and all of the outside furnishings. And they were responsible for the four coverings that went over the uh, framework and for the hanging of the door. Then there was the family of Merari. They moved the boards and the bars, the pillars, the silver sockets and the foundation. And along with the, uh, they moved also the tie-down cords that held everything in place. Both of these tribes were allotted carts and oxen for the transportation. And because Merari, the family of Merari, had more weight to carry, they carried the heavy boards, they were given more carts and more oxen to to carry uh, their responsibility. But then there's a third family, that's the family of Kohath, and they were given the charge of the inner furnishings in the sanctuary. And Kohath was given no carts because the inside furnishings were to be carried on the shoulders uh, of, the, uh, of the Levites. And so they had these staves, the long poles to carry 
these articles by, and the article, uh, the altar of incense, rather, uh, had these. The Ark of the Covenant also had these. The altar of incense had them. The Ark of the Covenant, though, uh, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that kind of recalls to us the story of Uzzah in in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'm not going to go into that story and read it because we will discuss it when we get to the Ark of the Covenant. But you remember that the Ark was put on a cart and when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant so that it wouldn't fall. And when he touched it, immediately God struck him dead. And there were two problems with that. The first was that no one was supposed to touch the ark. And then the second was they were to carry them, uh, these furnishings, the ark, uh, especially with the poles. And they weren't supposed to put it on a cart. It can only be carried uh, on their shoulders by the staves. So these are, these are just details that God required strict obedience God was not averse to taking lives if his commands were not obeyed. And we do see that several times in, in the scriptures and other places where the holy standards of worship weren't observed properly. And so God would strike people dead. And that makes me take a second and third look at what we do and call it worship. I was watching um, the worship service of one of the largest Baptist churches in America. And I was struck at how profane their actions were, and they called it worship. That's not really the subject tonight, not specifically. Of course, everything that we do in the church is for the worship of Jesus Christ. So I guess you could say, you could say that when I preach, every sermon uh, is about worship. And that's just a, the, these things that I mentioned here, just a little bit of extra credit for you tonight before we get into our study. So as we do, let's retrace our steps just a bit to go back into the earlier parts of the outline we've eliminated much of the talk of the symbolisms of the construction of the table since it parallels what we've already discussed so we're just concentrating now on the reasons that God wanted a table to hold bread why did God have them make this table and why is he specific about how this bread is handled well it's important because bread is a staple of life bread is a Something that God uses, something that we must have in our physical lives and in our spiritual lives, it shows how we must have dependence on God. So the first thing that we looked in our outline was the purpose of the bread. And there we learned that that the purpose of it is nourishment. The human body needs food to survive. And God put Israel into an extreme environment with nearly a non-existent food supply. And Moses was was supposed to sustain a population of, of maybe up to six million people. The rigors of the environment were to teach Israel that they would get nowhere without depending on God. Their circumstances were hopeless to have enough food to feed all of those people, even as, as hopeless as it was that Israel would ever be able to exit Egypt without God's help. The first trouble that Moses encountered after they went through the Red Sea was a problem of food and water. The first was water. They traveled only three days into the wilderness, and now this great crowd of people is thirsty, and there is no water. So they came to a body of water, and when they tasted, the waters were bitter. And they called the waters Marah, because that means bitter. God solved the problem in a very strange way by directing Moses to go to a tree. 
And how that was supposed to help, I'm sure that Moses didn't know. But God said, you take this tree and you throw it into the water. And when Moses did that, the waters were made sweet. And I don't think you have to, you really don't have to think very hard to figure out what that tree represents. How is the bitterness of a sinful soul satisfied? How is it healed? I suppose all good students know that, good Bible students know that that comes from the blessing of a tree. And that tree was the cross. One of the excellent worship songs that we sing is, O Mighty Cross. And in the second verse it says, O Mighty Cross, with throne of grace, he knew no sin, yet took my place. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. A tree thrown into the waters of Merah became a tree of life. And that's what saved Israel from their thirst. And then, of course, there's also the typology of the rock. This was a little bit later on when Israel was thirsty again. Moses struck the rock at Horeb. And Israel had water. Water came out of the rock. And when we look in the New Testament, it tells us that rock was Christ. And Jesus said, if you drink of the water that I give, you will never thirst again. And so we come to the symbolism of bread. The next encounter that Israel had uh, about food, water, and so forth was to murmur about their hunger. And thus we come to the story of manna that God sent from heaven. And Jesus said that this manna was a picture of him. It's a type of him. He is the antitype who is the true bread that came down from heaven. And I want to stop there for just a minute to make a point about typology. Jesus gave the Bible's best lesson on typology when he discussed manna. There we see that manna has a, a much larger application to it than just food that you eat. It was really a springboard to teach uh, God's people through an object lesson, through typology, that as bread sustains physical life, so that is a type of spiritual life. When Jesus said that he was the true bread that came from heaven, it was like saying uh, to those that were listening, here is your lesson in typology. The type can't do what the antitype does. And he says, I am the antitype of manna. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. And the application is that we receive spiritual nourishment from Jesus Christ. The truth is that every person hungers and thirsts for spiritual life because God made us that way. Just as he made your body to crave food, so he also made the spiritual man to crave a relationship with God. But that craving is suppressed by human depravity. And it's just like if we suppress food for too long, we will die. If we suppress that relationship with God for too long, then we will also die. Only we die spiritually and we die eternally in hell. And when Jesus discussed this, uh, the, the, some of the conversation revolved around which is much more important. Is it your physical life? Is it your spiritual life? Is it physical bread? Is it, is it spiritual bread? Uh, which food do you need the worst? And he answers that question in John 6, 27, when he says, Labor not for the meat or for the food that perisheth, but for the meat, the food which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So that's Jesus' lesson on typology. Now the second point that we discussed was the participants in the bread, and this is about fellowship. In the tabernacle arrangement, it was only the priests that were permitted to eat the bread. Twelve loaves were 
uh, baked each week, one loaf for each tribe. The priest ate the bread and then they replenished the bread as it was eaten. And that was to show that the entire nation was considered. They were represented by the priest. So the priest ate the bread showing that God intended to supply the whole nation through his providence. In the New Testament, we're taught that the old ordinances of the law were done away with. They were abolished. And instead, the believer is now a priest, and the believer is permitted to partake of fellowship with God. And not only with God, but also God has placed us into the fellowship of the church, where we become a living organism. We are a living body designated to service by offering spiritual sacrifices. So then we we went on to talk about service in the church, which centers in three important aspects. The first is acceptable service. That's reflected in earlier comments about the type of worship that God requires. We have only one option for doing the Lord's work. That is the New Testament church of Christ. And so to serve God acceptably, you must be a part of the body of Christ. Secondly, we talked about abundant supply. That God always has enough for everyone. He intends that we should have fellowship and that we should be a sharing and nurturing church. Uh, We might think that that means going out and feeding the homeless. Uh, It means doing all sorts of benevolent works outside of the church. Certainly we ought to do those kinds of things. But the emphasis here is not on what we do outside of the church, but what we do inside as God's people and the relationship that we have with each other through the fellowship of the church. We are to be a close-knit We are to care for the spiritual needs of every member. And I believe the chief method of doing that wouldn't be physical food. It's not the fellowships that we have around physical food when this church meets. But rather it's the fellowship that we have around the Word of God. That the Word of God is the nourishment that we need. And this is why I mentioned this morning that we want to be identified as a teaching church. As a church that has plenty of variety from the Word of God for you to learn. Then thirdly, there is active service, that you are to be an active part of the ministry. Every person in the church is given a spiritual gift for the good of the body. You can't use that gift if you're, if you're never here. If you're not here, the body suffers, and it's actually mistreatment of the body for members to miss church services. Because when you put your load on other people... That means you're not spiritual. You deprive the body of Christ of its support. Now maybe you say, well, is that really so important? Do I really need to think about that? Because really I come to church and all I am is a pew sitter. Does it matter that I'm here? Well, the first thing that's wrong is you shouldn't be a pew sitter, obviously. That's the first mistake. But regardless, if you just come to sit in the pew, you should be here Because if nothing else, what that does is to encourage weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. They learn about being in church and the fellowship of the church by your example. And so I think that every member of the church ought to ask himself, uh, what, what, what what does my attendance teach immature Christians about following the Lord? Am I being being an example that they can follow? Well, that turns out to be a lengthy review, but that's okay because there's information there included that I didn't give you in the earlier sermons. 
So we want to move on then and talk about our final observation of the table and we will finish with this. And that is thirdly, the process of the bread and this is about refinement. Now we go back to the text in Leviticus chapter 24 verse 5. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, two tenth deals shall be in one cake. There was never a more important adjective placed in front of flour than this word fine. Now, it doesn't seem to be very much, but there is a world of significance in this word fine. Fine is the process by which the flour is made suitable for making bread. Fine flour requires a beating and a sifting process. And what does that indicate? Well, it refers to the way that Christ was made a suitable sacrifice for our sins. So if you're following that listening sheet, this would be letter A, which is the sifting of the Savior. The sifting of the Savior. Last time we talked about the difficulty in those days of making bread. In our time, human hands hardly touch the product from the, uh, until it's time to eat because everything done in making bread is is automated that's from the planning of it to the harvesting to the processing so that idea of, of laborious type of travail to get fine flour is sort of lost on us uh, all we do is go into the grocery store when you want flour fine flour just go into the grocery store and pick it up off the shelf that is if people care to bake anymore but the Israelites couldn't do that. They had to do everything by hand. And getting fine flour was really a back-breaking process. It starts with plowing with oxen, hard ground, plowing up the hard ground, furrowing the rows with a stick. It, it took breaking up that ground and scattering the seed. It took tending to the crop to weed and to water it. It took sore, callous hands swinging a scythe to glean the wheat. Then it meant taking it to the threshing floor and separating the wheats of kernel, uh, kernels of wheat from the chaff. And that, when that process was done, that's only rendered it coarse grain, still not ready to make bread. And so it has to continue. There's a, uh, it has to be ground out to be suitable. And so it's put under a millstone and that's used. And, and then there has to be more separation after that and more beating and all of that is a picture of what it took to make Christ our perfect Savior. The process began at his birth. The grinding began when he was just a baby. He was sought by Herod, not for worship, but to kill him. The grinding continued as his parents had to pick him up and take him into Egypt until uh, they could return after Herod died. And then that grinding continued as he was raised in the ghetto town of Nazareth. Now, I think there's... Too little time that's spent describing what life in Nazareth must have been like. It was a very wicked place, just filled with the roughest of people. It had a very bad reputation for crime. Uh, it was, had a reputation of being the city of the dregs. And there was no respect for anyone who came from Nazareth. Remember, Na uh, Nathaniel said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? So it must have been a place of terrible temptation and you can just imagine the rogues that Jesus grew up with. And we tend to think that he had no temptations, that there weren't any until he became adult. And then he was led into the wilderness and there he was tempted by Satan. That's immediately after his baptism. 
But I can tell you that even as a, as a child and as a very young man, his temptation, his grinding, the process started long before he ever got into the wilderness. Nazareth was a place that was filled tem- with temptations. And yet the first glimpse that we get of Jesus is when he's 12 years old. He's lived in Nazareth all of that time. And at 12 years old, his parents took him to the temple. And at 12, his reputation was stellar. The grinding of Nazareth had no effect on his moral character. He constantly planned to do what the father wanted him to do. He said, I must be about my father's business. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing uh, how, for instance, in this, in this election process, these election campaigns, how there's a rush among politicians to dig up all the dirt that they can on their opponents. All of them are searching the archives and digging through the records to find a picture of just, just one picture of one of these politicians in blackface. That's the big thing now, you know. So they're trying to find a, a party that one of them attended where the, their opponents can show that they acted like animals. And so they look for their long forgotten friends to corroborate all the evidence and that they were actually despicable oafs as they were growing up. Biting and devouring everyone, uh, each other. That's, that's the mantra of today's politicians. And that is until one of them gets nominated. And then the others toe the party line. They fall in behind them. And then they start treating them like they're saints sitting on clouds. Well, here's what they could do. They could search the yearbooks of Nazareth High. And they could never find any dirt on Jesus. Here was a perfect young man. And surely, you know, he had to be the butt of all the jokes. Everybody wanted to see if they could get Jesus just to do something bad, something they could tell on him for, take just one puff of wheat, just one puff. And so he was ground and he was ground and he's ground and you couldn't squeeze a sin out of him. No matter what you did, you couldn't get Jesus to sin. And then, of course, that did continue after his baptism. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and for 40 days he was without food and water. And that made him physically depleted and just worn down and ripe to surrender to the devil's temptations. But still, Jesus never gave in. And then you know what his ministry was like. He was always hounded by the Jews who uh, wanted to kill him. Only had enough to deal with all the physical exhaustion that he went through. There were constant crowds that kept him up all the time and always following him. And they weren't looking for his salvation. They wanted food. They wanted the miracles. They wanted all of those things. And then finally, and really what I'm doing here is reducing 33 years of grinding to about five paragraphs. But finally he was ground and beaten down and went into the Garden of Gethsemane to agonize about the approaching cross. And the Bible says that he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Then they came and took him from the garden. And that was because of a friend's betrayal. So once again, beaten down, ground down. His friends, the Bible says finally all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so ground down by his friends deserting him. And when he came to his trial... They stood afar off and didn't even act like they knew him. And then he came to the cross. People slapped him. They pulled out his beard. They pressed a crown of long thorns into his head, stripped him of his clothes and left him naked, hanging with shame. 
an expert, just before putting him on the cross, an expert with a cat of nine tails, railed on his back, making long those furrows, just like oxen plowed the ground. Every lash that came against his back brought out a chunk of flesh and bone. Jesus ground down until he was beyond recognition. Almighty cross, love lifted high, the Lord of life raised there to die. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. But as you know, that wasn't the worst of the grinding. That's not the worst of the sifting that he went through. For God the Father put him under the millstone of his wrath and ground him down, turned his back on him and left him to die. They mocked him because of that too. They shouted at him. They said, come down from the cross. If you're God, if you are who you say you are, come down from the cross. Save yourself and we will believe. Almighty cross, O Christ so pure, love held him there. Such shame endured. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. In his life, Christ couldn't be ground any finer. Every last Lump, if there was one, was ground away, but of course there wasn't. He had no sin to grind out. But rather that grinding was an attempt to find anything in him that would make him fold under the pressure and take away that right he had to his inheritance. It didn't work because he was fine flour. He was without the smallest pebble of imperfection. And I want you to look at verse number five again. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Notice that word cakes. The Hebrew word there is chalal. And it means pierced. Before the bread was baked, they pierced it. They perforated it to make the bread bake thoroughly and evenly. And that's no typological stretch, I think, to see Christ pierced in the suffering of the cross. I mean, we can, most of you, without knowing Hardly any typology of all could catch that, that meaning without difficulty. But I want us to pay more attention to the purpose of piercing the cakes. It was to make them bake thoroughly and evenly. And that's a picture of the character of Christ's life. It's the uniformity of his life, the evenness of his life, so that he was neither hot-headed or quick-tempered, nor was he too meek to engage those that, that uh, perverted his words. He was fine flour. He's even and smooth, digestible, likable, holy, and righteous. Those who sincerely listened to him said, there is no man who's ever spoken like this man. Now, I'm not necessarily a, a fan of J. Vernon McGee. Now, that's another story for another time. But I like what he had to say about Jesus' character. Let me just quote from him. He was a normal person. Actually, I believe he was the only normal person who's ever been on this earth. Sin has made all the human race lumpy, one-sided, abnormal. One part of our personalities is overdeveloped at the expense of some other area of our personality. He went on and says, Jesus was well-balanced. He had equal poise in all areas of his personality. He could drive the money changers from the temple and he could take little children into his arms. When he was 12 years old, the religious rulers marveled at his wisdom. When he began to teach, the people were amazed, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? 
Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus never appealed to his intellect as the basis for any judgment. He came to do the Father's will, and that was the motive for his actions. Now, if you care to look at verse number 7 in this text, Leviticus 24, 7, And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Next to each row, these two rows, was placed a small cup of frankincense. They didn't, they didn't sprinkle that on the bread, but it has another purpose that I want to show you in a moment. But frankincense also speaks of Christ's life. It depicts a life that is well-pleasing. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. And frankincense is a very costly incense. The Israelites wouldn't normally have this because they were slaves in Egypt. They were poor. So probably this is one of the items that they took from the Egyptians when they spoiled them in the Exodus. And interestingly, uh, frankincense is one of the gifts, as you know, that was brought by the wise men when they came to worship Jesus at his birth. And it's speculated that the gifts that the wise men brought, frankincense, the gold, the myrrh, so forth, those things were sold to finance the flight of the family, Mary and Joseph and, and the baby, into Egypt. So that's just kind of a little bit of irony in God's plan that God's people came out of Egypt with frankincense and God's son went back down into Egypt with frankincense. It's just a lovely incense, a very expensive one, and gives off a very pleasing aroma. And God used that going in and coming out of Egypt to teach us a lesson. And it brings us to this last thought in our study of the table. Frankincense is lovely, but not as it sits in those two cups next to the two rows. So how are they going to get this aroma of the frankincense? Verse number seven tells us that it was taken as an offering and fire was put to it to release the aroma. Now this is our last point, the flame of the furnace. The flame of the furnace. Standing before the veil that separated the compartments is the altar of incense. That's the subject next time, so I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, but over on the table of showbread, there's this incense that they place, and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything as it sits there next to the bread. They couldn't eat it. They didn't sprinkle it on the bread. They had to burn it to release the fragrance. And the perfect spot for burning it is just a few feet away on the altar of incense. Now, I'm going to speak of that altar and its significance later. But I, I do just want to dwell on this one thing. I want to dwell on this, this thing of fire, on, on fire. Now, if I, if I preach Christ and I mention fire, what do you relate that to? I mean, we, I think we'd all want to know, what does Jesus have to say about fire? Well, preacher, uh, Jesus was a preacher of fire like no other. We might say that he was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He preached hellfire, but he didn't do it as a frothing, spewing, spitting, pulpit-beating IFB preacher, uh, not as he would do. Jesus didn't need to beat on pulpits. He had this gaze. You know that? He just had a gaze. He could look at people and just penetrate to the deepest recesses of the soul. He could bring conviction. And so he warned there's a hell that's coming for the unbeliever. And he told the people, unless you believe in me, 
Unless you trust me, you will die in your sins and you'll be cast into the outer darkness of Gehenna hell. And when he said things like that, they understood the terminology very well. They understood the references because then he was using, when he talked about the, the, the Gehenna hell, they knew what he was talking about because he was using a type. And what is the type? Well, outside of the city of Jerusalem, there was a valley where at one time idols were worshipped, sacrifices were made of their children to the heathen god Molech. Now we're in the New Testament times and the Jews are long past these forays that they had into idolatry. And so to show the detestable nature of it, they took that very same valley that at one time was considered the holy place where fires burned their children to these heathen gods. And in their utter contempt for idolatry, they had turned that valley into a garbage dump for the city. Every vile thing was thrown into it. Rats and worms and maggots were in the compost there were continual fires that burned. And so when Jesus spoke of hellfire and he talked of worms that don't die, he probably cast his eyes in the direction of that valley. They knew the type. They knew what he meant. But what they didn't know is that when Jesus went to the cross, the fire would be his. The cross is where God would put the intense suffering of hell on him and he would suffer what his people would have to suffer if they were cast into the fire for punishment of their sins. His was an infinite suffering because he's infinite God. I can't really explain that to you. You and I could sit here and discuss this from the time that the Lord comes to take us and we would never be able to figure out how did this man in a finite period of time suffer infinite punishment for everyone who would believe. I can't explain that. But I do know that he suffered that punishment only a God-man could do it, and thus another reason for the incarnation at Christmas. And you might ask, well, how, how do I know that Jesus suffered hell on the cross? What leads me to believe that? Is that something that I or others have made up because that makes a really good preaching point? Well, I know that Jesus suffered hell because the scripture says he died for our sins. He was punished for our sins which, which, by the way, is the basis of the doctrine of penal substitution. And I know that he suffered hell because there's only one place in the Bible that there is any punishment for sin. There is no other place of punishment for sin but hell. And so if Christ took the penalty of our sins, it must be the punishment of hell. Oh, I know somebody might say, well, well, you know, I sinned and I went to the priest and I confessed. And he told me, say five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers and all's good. No, it's not all good because sin was never paid for that way. Sins are punished in hell. And unless the priest can say to you, go to hell, then I'm sorry. You, 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 can't, you can't take sin any other way. And you know that would be really strange if you, if you went into a confessional booth and you said, bless me, Father, for I had sinned. And he said, go to hell. Um... <laughs> Sounds strange, but that would be the only remedy. But he couldn't stop there. He'd say, go to hell and stay there. Stay there forever and don't come back. Because that's the only way that you can be punished for it. Well, because Jesus is the infinite God, he doesn't say, go to hell. He says, I went to hell for you. I went there for you. It's not as some 
think by misinterpreting the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into literal hellfire. No, not that way. No, on the cross. That's where God unleashed the fury of hell on him. And it was an equivalent suffering for that eternity in the fires of hell. Well, you hear this and you say, what, what does that have to do with incense? Well, in this way, for the fragrance of the incense to be released, it must be put into the fire. And for the saving efficacy and the sweetness of Jesus' life to have any benefit for you, he must go into the fire for you. When Jesus was on the cross suffering for sin, the sweet incense of all the good things that he did in his life was burned up for us. And out of that came the fragrance of holiness and righteousness and salvation. All of that is released. This beautiful aroma of Jesus Christ is released as he is put into the fire. O mighty cross, my soul's release. The stripes he bore have bought me peace. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. And so in conclusion, if you come to church and you hear about the bread of life, and you come and feast on the nourishment of that in God's word, I hope you have a different perception. Keep in mind what it took for you to hear about this bread. Keep in mind what it took that Jesus had to go through so that this would have any meaning to you at all. Being here would have any meaning to you. So I, I listened to that worship service of a Baptist church that has 42,000 members. And I was saddened when the songs that they sang were about them, not about the cross. And I was saddened when some wannabe rockers sang songs that were straight off the pop charts. I mean, right down to the oohs and the ahs and the guitar riffs, the whole show. And I wondered as I watched that, do they know anything about Christ? Do they, do they know what Christ did? Are they capable of singing one of our songs? One of those songs that takes us down into the depravity of our souls and just breaks us down and brings us to tears as we think about the majesty of our Savior and the one who so cruelly sifted, beaten down, ground down, burned in a fire for us who are unruly, rebellious, hell-bound sinners. Do they understand that? And then I listened as the preacher got up and strangely enough for this church that advertises 42,000 members, he stood in a huge half-filled auditorium and he delivered a little homily on anxiety. And I looked at that and I thought, here at Berean, we're a true church of Jesus Christ. And we're just a little band that comes together. We listen and we wonder at the majesty of Christ. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for Christ. And so we enter this place. We come into his tabernacle to see him. Hallelujah, we sing. He is our life. Jesus is my life. He's our bread. He's our nourishment. He's our fellowship. He is our refinement. And you know what he does? He sifts us until we come out perfect just as he is. We smell the sweet fragrance of Jesus when we worship our Savior. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Our bread of life, the nourishment that we receive that 
is the salvation of our unworthy souls. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the word that we can read about him and study. I thank you for your church, that people come and listen and listen intently to feeble words, not given in any sort of eloquence at all, but words that come from the scriptures and that will really, truly, I think, break us down and realize what a great Savior we have. Thank you for our people. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for our fellowship in this church. Bless us, Lord, and help us to live a well-pleasing life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.